Satnam. Wanted to do a, well, this episode for quite some time. I'm Andy Rasmussen. This is Zion Consciousness and Covenant Podcast. And uh, really been thinking about, pondering about these things for a long time, years in most cases. Um, it wasn't ever really the time, and I don't know that it's time now. So I don't have anything like a complete picture of anything. But I wanted to offer some thoughts, ideas, perspectives. And uh, I don't want to reiterate at the beginning. I want to make clear, rather, that these are thoughts by Andy today, December 13th, 2018. I'm not making any doctrinal assertions or claims, um, nor am I laying claim to any of these ideas for time and all eternity. Uh, They have changed over time. I anticipate they will continue to do so. But I wanted to share some and and maybe be of use, uh, utility to some folks out there uh, at this point. So, You know, this comes after almost to about a year and a half now, a little more of, of dedicated sadhana, including um, a few months ago finishing 120 days of meditating specifically on the Divine Feminine and the Adi Shakti Mantra. Now, when I say a couple of years of sadhana, this is uh, early morning, you know, uh, 60 to 90 minutes. I've done something every day for now almost four years, and I think that's prepared me a little bit uh, to, to see some different things and and share some things. In any case, uh, this, this meditation uh, with the Adi Shakti Mantra, um, probably time to put a few concepts out there into the ether. So uh, by no means, this, this won't be anything like a comprehensive discussion. Uh, just a, a chat about some interlock, interlinking ideas and concepts of the reality that we find ourselves in here in this in this life on Earth. Uh, perhaps a glimpse of beyond, but the uh, we're just really going to hit the heads of a few things. I have uh, several months ago, about eight or nine months ago, I wrote out an, uh, some lengthy notes, and I have had I've got some additional thoughts and quotes since then. So I'm going to. Just try to pull them all together. I, I don't know that it'll, it'll be a, a super coherent narrative. Um, I, I, I certainly think that's there, but this is my kind of first draft in pulling all these things together in one. I do have a, uh, some ideas of where I want to go, but we'll certainly see if that's where we end up. So I mentioned the Adi Shakti mon- meditation. Um, the mantra we use in this meditation, many of you have done it. <clears throat> Is, is the Adi Shakti Mantra. It's a powerful symbol. The Adi Shakti is in, uh, in many Eastern uh, Indian, particularly cultures and, and religions and, and in the Sikh faith in this case uh, specifically. Uh, it's a powerful symbol of the Divine Feminine. Now, there are corresponding ideas in the ancient Hebrew religion, which we'll get to in a little bit, particularly before the Deuteronomist uh, reforms and reforms of King Josiah, uh, just about the time uh, of uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Lehi, before as he left Jerusalem, just before the uh, first um, diaspora, the, the first the, the Babylonian exile. Uh, so we'll talk about some of those in a little bit. But 
we also see some of this echoed in the Book of Mormon in the religious symbology uh, of Lehi and Nephi, particularly as contrasted with Laman and Lemuel's understanding of rabbinical Judaism. Now, I'm not going to get into that at all. But there's some a lot of this stuff. I'm, a lot of these things I'm talking about today are not my own ideas. Some are. Some are interpolations of things, other things I've, other people's research and and uh, and ideas. But this one particularly comes from uh, uh, some work done by, and published through the Mormon Interpreter Foundation. And don't remember recall who the author is at this point, but maybe I can run and get it. Let you know at the end of the podcast. Um, in any case, um, there is a there is a and that that discusses some of the some of the cultural and, and contextual aspects of Lehi and, and Nephi and Laman and Lemuel. But I'm sure some of you are familiar with the work of Daniel Peterson, uh, in this case based off the work of, of Margaret Barker, who is a who's an actual Methodist preacher in and researcher in the UK, done a lot of work on this. We'll get to her a little bit more later. But uh, Daniel Peterson, a number of years ago, published a couple of um, papers on the idea of of the divine feminine in the Book of Mormon, particularly as the tree of life and the love of God in Nephi's vision. These are associated directly with the Holy Mother Mary and the divine feminine. You'll recall, I'm not going to read it verbatim here, but you'll call the, recall the well, you know what? Let's just let's just read. Uh, Lehi had his vision. He came and came and told his in the tree of life. He came and told his sons about it, and his his daughters, his children, his family about it. And uh, they all, while they were kind of arguing with each other, trying to figure out what it meant, Nephi decided to go ask and and to see the same thing. And he had uh, the same vision open to him with the spirit as a guide for interpretation. And uh, starting in verse 9, he says, and, and it came to pass that after I had seen the tree, I said unto the Spirit, I behold, thou hast shown unto me the tree, which is precious above all. And he said unto me, What desirest thou? And I said unto him, To know the interpretation thereof. And it came to pass that he said unto me, Look. And I looked as if to, to, to look upon him, and I saw him not, for he had gone from before my presence. And it came to pass that I looked and beheld the great city of Jerusalem, and also other cities. And I beheld the city of Nazareth, and in the city of Nazareth I beheld a virgin. She was exceedingly fair and white. And it came to pass that I saw the heavens open. And an angel came down and stood before me, and he said unto me, Nephi, what beholdest thou? And I said unto him, A virgin, most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. And he said unto me, Knowest thou the condescension of God? And I said unto him, I know that he loveth his children, nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. And he said to me, Behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the Son of God, after the manner of the flesh. Interesting, he asked to know the interpretation of the tree, and the first thing that he was shown was the Holy Virgin Mother of the Word of God embodied. We're going to bring all this together in a little bit later, but I wanted to point that out. Uh, and there's there's ample evidence now <clears throat> that Nephi and Lehi specifically came from an uh, an older wisdom tradition, a temple-based tradition, in which the Holy Mother uh, was uh, prominent, and uh, he he would have understood the symbolism of the tree 
as that which is most desirous above all being equated with the Holy Mother and uh, and the condescension of God. Okay. Also, interestingly, in the context of the dream, the rod of iron symbolizing the word of God could easily be conceptualized as the masculine. Uh, perhaps even some some scholars have said perhaps even uh, in conceptualized for in Lehi's world as a rod, as a staff, like a shepherd's staff, uh, instead of a handrail, like we we all usually think of it. That either way, it doesn't really matter. Um, but that word of God, which delivers you to uh, the tree and that which is most precious above all, the divine feminine. It, it, we'll, we'll get to more of that. Like I said, uh, uh, if you for more on, on those particular interpretations and a much more involved discussion, I recommend Nephi and his Asherah by Dan Peterson. Anyway, Adi Shakti means literally the primal first power. Okay. Feminine in its aspect, it divines the future, both known and unknown, and is the embodiment of creativity, balance, and completion. As a symbol, it impact, its impact transcends the rational mind. That's from 3HO's explanation of the Adi Shakti mantra. The primal first power is what Adi Shakti means. That which gives birth, right? The creative power, uh, which is first in this physical plane. Okay. Um, as a symbol, it, its impact transcends the rational mind. Well, interesting, which rational mind is often seen uh, throughout spiritual and philosophical traditions in history as masculine in energy. The rationality is often seen as masculine. Now, I want to make a distinction at the beginning here. Male is not necessarily... Um, equivalent to masculine, and female is not necessarily equivalent to feminine. All of creation, including every human being, has both masculine and feminine energy and traits. One is generally dominant, um, but they're not, and obviously masculine generally dominant in in, in male and, and vice versa for females. <clears throat> but some, because something is masculine does not necessarily mean it's it's male when the discussion, this discussion, we're talking about um, archetypal um, symbols and, and energy. Okay, so the rational mind is, uh, it's dynamic, it's single-pointed, and binary in function. It tells you, right, it's a guide. It tells you yes, no, it's like a computer. Yes, no, uh, right, left, This it, 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 it's binary and single-pointed, and that's the nature of the rational mind, particularly when when used as a appropriately as the servant of the heart uh, in, in conjunction to guide a, a human being forward. When it's corrupted, then it becomes mu much like the Mephistophelian Mephistophelian, thank you, um, character uh, that, that is uh, satanic in nature. The, the rational mind that sets itself up as, as um, king and uh, and worships its own creations. Uh, that's the corruption of that element of the masculine energy. Anyway, uh, back to the Adi Shakti mantra. And it's so, let's just go through it really quickly for this meditation. Many of you know it. It's Adi Shakti, Adi Shakti, Adi Shakti, Namo Namo. Translation, I bow to the primal power. Sadaba Shakti, Sadaba Shakti, Sadaba Shakti, Namo Namo. 
I bow to the all-encompassing power and energy. Pritham, Pritham Bhagavati, Pritham Bhagavati, Pritham Bhagavati, Namo, Namo. I bow to that which God creates. Kundalini, Mata Shakti, Mata Shakti, Namo, Namo. I bow to the creative power of the Kundalini, the Divine Mother power. Again from 3 Show here, in these lines we see the Yantra reflected in the Nod, the three aspects of God, creator, organizer, deliverer, and the polarity of the human mind, Namo, Namo, bowing in reverence. Each line contains the Trinity within it through the repetition, three times. And each successive line gives flesh to that trinity, to the aspects of God's creative infinity <clears throat> from the beginning, throughout all things and embodied in the divine. The final line is the khanda, that straight, and that's what the khanda means. It's a straight two-edged sword, which divides asunder, as Helaman said. The kundalini mata shakti, the movement of the creative force through the center of our being, the shushmana, that central spinal channel as embodied in the mother's by, excuse me, by the mother's energy. <clears throat> this creative energy lives in each of us, male or female, and cuts through the limitations of the ego and transcends what we call good and bad. It's the beacon, the shining light that guides our path. And whether we were mothered poorly or beautifully, the Mata Shakti moves through us as our truest essence, our infinite creative nature. Okay, so that's the Adi Shakti mantra. It's a good a place to start as any. The idea of the divine feminine in union with the divine masculine is, is uh, well, the divine masculine that we're familiar with in the Abrahamic family of patriarchal religions. Think of that. We're very familiar with that con those concepts. And now we're going to marry them, so to speak, conceptually for the moment with this idea of the Adi Shakti that we find in, in the East. Let's begin maybe uh, with a, uh, an additional layer or level of abstraction so we can get our bearings on the symbolic landscape that we want to tra traverse here. After all, one of the, and this is key, one of the biggest benefits of symbolism is that it trains our mind to stop being domain dependent and start recognizing patterns. And, and then we can see patterns and, and reflections and lessons and truth uh, in a number of different contexts. Uh, our, our understanding then in our comprehension when it's not domain dependent can, then blossoms <clears throat> from our intuition, which intuition comes from our innocence. You start to see the stacking of the, of the divine uh, attributes and characteristics here, why they're, their utility in, in a relationship. Uh, but if we go into something thinking we've got it all figured out, it's going to be a struggle <laughs> when we encounter a concept outside of our paradigm. Uh, so intuition comes from innocence. So briefly, if you're not driving, let's get into a meditative mindset together just to try to, just to understand these things, just a bit of heart breathing as I talk. Okay, to set the stage, <clears throat> I'm going to draw heavily on ideas from a number of places, uh, initially from the works of Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, and Jordan Peterson most recently. Uh, particularly as framed in his books, Maps of Meaning, his book, Maps of Meaning. The subtitle of that book, 
uh, gets at what we're after, the architecture of belief. We want to understand the substructure that our behavior and belief are built on subconsciously. So to get our bearings here, <clears throat> we need to have a basic concept, uh, just basically of the archetypal or mythological landscape that we all inhabit in this earthly life, whether we're aware of it of consciously or not, and usually we're not. This landscape is reflected in almost every good story we tell ourselves, from the biblical and scriptural canon uh, to our own fictionalized stories like, uh, like the Iliad, Shakespeare, uh, even Harry Potter, of course, Star Wars, um, and a lot of modern movies <clears throat> that have really locked on to Joseph Campbell's uh, way of telling the story. So it probably goes without saying, but when I say mythological, I'm referencing the irreducible archetypal nature of the stories, not commenting on their historicity and or veracity. Uh, most of you know by now that I take very seriously the literality of the scriptural stories. Uh, but but they can be read truthfully on a number, many, many levels of analysis and application. And we're going to try to engage them today in a symbolic uh, way. So symbolism, obviously, is the, the language of scripture and of ritual. You can think of the temple and others. So to be unversed in symbolism is to literally be scripturally and ritually illiterate. As Joseph McConkie notes, uh, symbols are the language in which all gospel covenants and all ordinances of salvation have been revealed. From the time we are immersed in the waters of baptism to the time we kneel at the altar of the temple in the ordinance of eternal marriage, every covenant we make will be written in the language of symbolism. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me, so fundamentally, the archetypal landscape for the human experience begins with the individual <clears throat> and the world that that individual must traverse in a good life, right, or a meaningful life. Within each individual, we find every polarity known in the fallen world. I mentioned that before. Most basic of these of the archetypes, <clears throat> of course, is the hero and the adversary. They're both opposing elements with the archetypal son, S-O-N, uh, or the manifested will of, of, uh, of an individual will manifested in this life and that's nested in the creative reality of the father that that all encompassing creative reality the the, of the ultimate <clears throat> and that in turn is nested in the vessel and this is some some uh, parallels here with uh with yogic cosmology as well but in the vessel of the all of of the mother which holds all things in creation so in many stories these uh the hero and the adversary, like that's one of the most base archetypes, uh, represented as rival brothers. <clears throat> uh, the archetypes there, of course, are Christ and Satan. Um, you get uh, in, in the, in the most familiar, or maybe most the earliest uh, representation on a physical level is Cain and Abel. But it's these two potentialities within oneself, within each individual, that must be contended with in this life. It's like Crow Jung said, right? The line between good and evil runs right down the center of each heart. We've got to understand these archetypes. We have stories about them so that we can begin to, to understand and conceptualize them even before we can articulate them. But we need to understand they're not stories external to us. They're stories about ourselves individually, even more so and before they're stories about our, uh, our society. So moving to the Eastern conceptions, it's also understood that regardless of whether the individual is man or woman in this life, as I said, we've all got the, the masculine and feminine elements and energy and attributes within us. Uh, there are very real differences between men and women 
humans. Uh, we'll, we'll get to some of that later. But we all have these archetypal constituent elements of, of humanity within our own our own uh, souls and bodies. So, so we have the individual. <clears throat> and now the archetypal world that one begins with um, is, is the potentiality of chaos. Okay, we're going to do order and chaos a little bit from a Jordan Peterson theme here, and then we're going to jump off that into some other things. But it, the chaos contains everything that ever could be. Think about that. Think about the egg, the human egg. It contains all possibilities for the vast cosmic play of creation of that individual, and of course then all of the cosmos create, contains the same. This is the field of the unmanifested and the divine. It's what's referenced in the word om. This is uh, uh, Yogananda in Autobiography of Yogi. Om is feminine, feminine in nature and similar to what has been termed the Holy Spirit in ancient Hebrew scripture. In fact, uh, we'll get to Margaret Barker a little bit more in a minute, but but her research uh, uh, makes the claims over and over again that the Hebrew word um, used for Holy Spirit and throughout the Old Testament is feminine. And the pronoun is feminine, uh, particularly in well, well, we'll get to a couple of those cases in a minute. Uh, <clears throat> so, and you had Yogananda equated Om with the with the Christian idea of the Holy Spirit. It is that unmanifested. In fact, it's uh, well, it's it's why in in Kundalini Yoga, Om is the is the manifested version of Om. Okay, from the feminine principle of unorganized creative potential, and you have that right, that idea. <clears throat> the the logos or the word of God vibrates vibrates within that field that that ohm field and calls forth order and organizes a world of form. Think about um, this Aslan in in Chronicles of Narnia when he's creating the world it's it's formless it's dark. Uh, there's infinite potential there in that chaos. And I want to make sure when I say order and chaos and speaking about chaos, it's not a negative connotation. It is one of the two constituent elements of reality. It's the yin and the yang, right? I believe it's the yang in any case. It's the feminine aspect of the, of the potential, the unmanifested of the individual and the world. And Aslan walks through it singing. And it's that vibratory force of the logos, the word of God that John speaks of that calls forth and organizes form. And this process, <clears throat> we, we get it in the temple and in Genesis and or in, in Narnia, you know, as, as the creation of the world, but it's not a one-time event, of course. It's, it's constantly happening, flowing and changing as things come in and out of form and God and his children use the Logos principle to call new things into being and allow old ones to pass away on a continuous basis. So this is the flow of life and creation on a physical plane. We're always taking part in it, whether we're conscious of it or not, and that's that's why uh, it's the instruction that we receive in the temple. So we're aware of that. Uh, that that coming everything coming from the deep water, right? That, that's even the evolutionary story. <clears throat> life begins in the deep and in the water, which is represents always represents chaos and is feminine. Life springs forth and moves within the feminine uh, when animated by by the vibration of, of in, in the scientific theory the electrical current or whatever correct so it's um and it doesn't matter what context you want to look at it in the 
like the constituent elements of that of the reality are the same masculine moving within or in, in creating form from <clears throat> from the great uh, field of possibilities so we have this constant interplay you think of the yin and the yang going round and around constant interplay between the feminine potential of divine creativity uh, literally literally all that is all truth and the activation and organizing principle that single pointed energy of the word of god or the logos true speech and vibration that's obviously as we said the complementary masculine principle at work in the physical dualistic world i'm not saying anything about outside of this kind of uh temporal dualistic world we live in right now this physical reality but that's how it works here so it starts to become obvious then why the word of god incarnated as a man and why he came only through the sacred mother woman without an earthly father you have the two great archetypes there <clears throat> the male and female the order and chaos the two great elements of, of all reality those irreducible constituent elements and then a third there there's a, a child born in the union right uh creates the the trinity uh and, and that's of course the story of the savior himself this is jordan peterson's fond of pointing out and i agree with him that's my favorite piece of art in in all the world michelangelo's uh pieta the one that sits in saint peter's uh, basilica he's done he, he did a couple of them that he turned the name Pietà, but this is the the one in marble. Uh, Jesus having just been crucified, laying across the lap of Mary. An unbelievable artistic representation of the archetypal reality of humankind. It's just perfect. It is the father, mother, masculine, feminine, child, uh, masculine, feminine, producing life and light. Okay, so that uh, anyway. Another thing to be aware of here, and I'm not sure how much we'll talk about this, but I, I love the three, uh, and of course there are three, right? The three archetypal women of history, as far as the biblical history and Judeo-Christian tradition. And that's Eve, Mary, the Virgin Mother, and Mary Magdalene in the garden, in the, in the garden of, of the resurrection. Now, we... And I think it's a good idea. We could meditate for years profitably on the symbology and implications of those three women. Um, and why, how they embody the three roles of the, of the divine feminine in this, in this earth. And the absolute crucial, critical nature. And again, embodying, moving life through this temporal experience. And uh, guarding it at every, at every step and, and, and providing the power by which it moves. We'll, we'll get to more of that. But consider uh, consider those three, Eve, Mary, Mother of Christ, and Mary Magdalene as the witness to the resurrection, the first witness to the resurrection. I mentioned Om as, a, as feminine in nature, <clears throat> as a field of, un, of the unmanifested. This, uh, again, this is why we use Om. O-N-G in Kundalini Yoga, is the manifested version of the divine in physical form on the earth. So it contains, literally, now think about it this way, the fertilization of the feminine, om, by the masculine logos. 
Again, that's probably worth pondering on for a little while. I wanted to to pause here and read a, something I found. This is uh, from the book Raja Yoga by Swami Vivekananda. I think it's uh, I think it was published about 1890. Vivekananda was the first uh, yogi to come over to from India to the United States, <clears throat> and he he wrote this book in English and published it in the States again about 1890. Raja Yoga, again Kundalini Yoga is a Raja Yoga. Raja meaning royal. Chapter two in that book is called simply Prana. And I read it and I first read it several months ago. It was last year sometime, and I and I thought, my goodness, you can replace literally take a, a word document uh, feature, search and replace some of these words and replace priesthood or excuse me, prana with word priesthood. Maybe add keys to the idea of pranayama, and you would have like it would be it would still be entirely true. And, and, and so I did that, and I'm going to read it to you with those those um, replacements. Now I don't want to. Uh, this is the, the Raja Yoga by Swami Vivekananda, I believe, is a is a public um, book at this point, public copyright. <clears throat> In any case, I certainly don't have any rights to change it. I'm just going to read an excerpt here with those changes I'm telling you about, just to give you an idea that I think it correctly reflects a doctrine of the gospel. Uh, and the priesthood that we don't always say uh, realize. So again, I replaced, find and replace the word prana with priesthood. I added the word keys wherever he mentioned pranayama, which is of course breathing exercises. And I replaced the words raja yoga with the law of the gospel. <clears throat> Taking some liberties here, obviously, I'm letting you know exactly what it's what I'm doing. And uh, and and this is Vivekananda's work, not mine. So. <clears throat> And this is it's a rather lengthy excerpt, but let's see what it says. Pranayama, or keys, is not, as many think, something about breath. <clears throat> breath indeed has very little to do with it, if anything. Breathing is only one of the many exercises through which we get to the real pranayama, or keys. Pranayama, or keys, means control of priesthood. Again, that original word was prana. According to the philosophers of India, the whole universe is composed of two materials, one of which they call akasha, which is the omnipresent, all-penetrating existence, everything that has form, everything that is the result of combination, everything is evolved out of this akasha. So that's the form. <clears throat> it is the akasha that becomes the air, that becomes the liquids, that becomes the solids. It is the akasha that becomes the sun, the earth, the moon, the stars, the comets, the comets, excuse me. It is the akasha that becomes the human body, the animal body, the plants, every form that we see, everything that can be sensed, everything that exists. It cannot be perceived. It is so subtle that it is beyond all ordinary perception. It can only be seen when it has become gross and taken form, gross matter. At the beginning of creation, there is only this akasha. At the end of the cycle of solids, the liquids and the gases all melt back into the akasha again. And the next creation similarly produce, proceeds out of this akasha. There's the cycle. By what power is this akasha manufactured in, into this universe then? By the power of priesthood. Again, originally prana. I think there, for our purposes, there's some equivalency in conception there. 
So continuing with Vivekananda. Just as Akasha is the infinite omnipresent, omnipresent material of this universe, so is this priesthood the infinite omnipresent manifesting power of this universe, material and power, that which is acts and that which is acted upon. Interesting parallels there with, with humanity and, and, and males and females in the, in the, in the union that creates life. Vivekananda continues, at the beginning and at the end of the cycle, everything becomes Akasha. And all the forces that are in the universe resolve back into the priesthood. In the next cycle, out of this priesthood is evolved everything that we call energy, everything that we call force. So prana equals energy, and our, for our purposes today here, priesthood equals energy. It is the pre continuing. It is the priesthood that is manifesting as motion. It is the priesthood that is manifesting as gravitation, as magnetism. It is the priesthood that is manifesting as the actions of the body, as the nerve currents, as thought force. From thought down to the lowest force, everything is but the manifestation of the priesthood. The sum total of all forces in the universe, mental or physical, when resolved back to their original state, is called priesthood. Again, originally prana. Continuing, the physical motion of the priesthood was stopped, <clears throat> but it existed all the same. At the end of a cycle, the energies now displayed in the universe quiet down and become potential. Potential, again, remember, remember feminine in aspect. At the beginning of the next cycle, they start up, strike upon the... So I want, I want to place that key. When the energies in the universe quiet down and become potential, they become, they are feminine in aspect. We equated energy with priesthood. There is an that is an element there where the priesthood is feminine in aspect. Okay, continuing Vivekananda. At the beginning of the next cycle, they start up, strike upon the Akasha, and out of the Akasha evolve these various forms. And as the Akasha changes, this priesthood changes also into all the manifestations of energy. You think now of quantum mechanics, where we know that everything, all of matter, everything we see is just a vibration, it's a manifestation of energy. Continuing, the knowledge and control of this priesthood is really what is meant by pranayama, or keys of the priesthood. This opens us to the door to almost unlimited power. Suppose, for instance, a man understood the priesthood perfectly and could control it. What power on earth could not be his? This is continuing Vivekananda. He would be able to move the sun and the stars out of their places. To, con yeah, con to control everything in the universe, from the atoms to the biggest suns. He would control the priesthood. This is the end and aim of pranayama, or the keys of the priesthood, the various keys. When the yogi becomes perfect, <clears throat> there will be nothing in nature not under his control. All right, that, that ends that excerpt from Raja Yoga uh, by Swami Vivekananda with, uh, with my uh, substitutions. Interesting that, well, let's, I think that speaks for itself. And again, we could talk for, for quite a while upon on implications there. And, and you can find this book in its entirety online. Uh, you can just read the PDFs there. But I wanted to get a, a, a cite something else. This is an excerpt from Awake as in Ancient Days uh, by Felice, Namjoti Kar. <clears throat> she says, in the temples of the Lord, and think when I say temples, think of our, the edifices, both ancient and modern, also your bodies. In the temples of the Lord, sacred ordinances are performed. In the guide to the scriptures, ordinance is defined as, quote, sacred rites and ceremonies. 
ordinances consist of acts that have spiritual meanings. Acts that have spiritual meanings. Acts, actions, which is again masculine in nature. That's why, why it's a priesthood ordinance. Felice continues, I'm not the first to suggest that there are also ordinances of a kind that occur in the temple of our bodies. As I explained earlier, the, or the term ordinance has a meaning roughly similar to the word sacrament in other Christian denominations. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland suggests that human intimacy is such a sacrament. As he explains, quote, for our purposes here today, <clears throat> a sacrament could be any one of a number of gestures or acts or ordinances that unite us with God and his limitless powers. Think about that. And she was thinking about it in terms of, of, of yoga, kriyas, etc. Uh, anyway, she continues, Elder Holland adds that all special moments of union with God are sacramental moments, and that we should seek them out as often as possible and appropriate. In doing so, we can gain access to God's power. That's uh, the quote from Elder Holland. Okay, so we're going to start pulling some of this stuff together. I anticipate this will probably take a couple of episodes. <clears throat> and I hope you'll find it worthwhile. I'm finding it worthwhile just to get the thoughts out. <laughs> And, um, and somewhat organized. So now to complete the archetypal landscape of our world, you have man, or mankind, uh, men and women, as children of God, using the logos, that word, to establish habitable order out of the chaos of nature. This is back to, to Peterson, right? Humans can do this according to the power of true speech and action, or they can establish civilization by force, that habitable order. When you establish it by force, you take no thought for the intelligence or the agency of the rest of creation in, in which you're operating. This duality of the nature of the masculine organizing principle is laid out very clearly in Moses 5 and 6 in the Pro Great Price, where it talks about the difference between the, the descendant, how the descendants of Cain established civilization versus how the descendants of Seth established civilization. One was by the word in cooperation with creation, and the other was, was by force, and that became the civilization we recognize today but both were doing the same thing creating a hab a place to live a habitable order out of the chaos or, or um well chaos both positive and negative aspects there of of creation now i do want to mention and we'll, we'll develop it in just a minute in a, in, a, in a much more evolved way but just like everything else in this dualistic world both masculine and feminine have have two aspects. They each have a positive and a negative, or a organizing and disorganizing um, side. Or in Jungian terms, you know, uh, they each have a shadow side. So we'll get to, get to more of that in just a minute. Anyway, so I think where we're now, where we're at now, we've we've come to kind of the the fundamental archetypal structure of this world. Nature, with all her beneficence and life-giving and sustaining characteristics, is feminine in nature. Um, you recall in, it, when Enoch is looking upon the world in, in The Pearl of Great Price, uh, he, he notes that Mother Earth cries out under the sins of men. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a feminine pronoun there. Uh, th there are good reasons, obviously, that we call her Mother Nature. And it's similar for the sea, incidentally. Obviously, the pronoun sailors use for the sea has always been feminine. 
Again, that's the boundless potential. The sea holds all life and necessities for life within her, right? Supporting the very existence of life on this planet. And it holds a massive and beneficent space. It holds the space for mankind to exist on this sphere. That's the sea. Like in a previous podcast, I think I mentioned the sea is feminine and the boat upon it and that principle of action moving upon the, the sea um, as being typical of, of the masculine energy in the world. Interestingly, the relative size of the boat of the two in that metaphor is also congruent with the energetic and physical realities representing the masculine and the feminine. Think of the size, uh, shape, for instance, and stillness of the human egg as it's approached by the teeny tiny little frenetic spermatozoa uh, seeking to create union and, and new life. That's size relativity there to the, the boat upon the sea. The, the metaphors work, again, across a number of different examples. That's the, that's the patterns when you start to see it symbolically. Uh, again, also think of the first days of creation as described in Genesis and uh, the Book of Moses, the temple ceremony, elsewhere. Chaos, water, is penetrated by the word logos to create life and order. Okay. Uh, parenthetically, actually, songs around that. Consider the sperm as it approaches the human egg. It's almost it's almost infinitesimally small and active compared to the whole, complete, and stillness of the egg. Yogi Bhajan said the successful sperm orbits the egg eight times, completing what is an ashtang orbit, right? Eight times before penetration. Uh, it, circumscribing two complete and interlocking squares around the outside of the circle of the egg. That was Yogi Bhajan. This symbol then looks very much, much like what's described um, in LDS culture. This symbol that's gained popularity in recent years, the so-called seal of Melchizedek. You find it on the San Diego Temple. Um, President Hinckley was sufficiently impressed that he, he put it on the Salt Lake Temple and the doors to the, going into the annex there. This is the eight-pointed star that we find throughout uh, some places in antiquity. Again, um, it's identified in one of Nibley's works as a potential seal of Melchizedek, although that, that identification may be dubious. But in any case, uh, you've all seen it, and it, it is now on our current temples. And certainly it was as a religious symbology throughout the ancient Near East, uh, particularly Orthodox Christianity used it a lot. And it, it is... It is a pictorial or symbolic represent well, an exact not symbolic an exact pictorial representation of the at least right of the uh, um, journey of the sp successful sperm around the egg uh, that's my own interpretation that's not what most people would most scholars say it represents it's a number of places that say it represents Christ it represents a new beginning represents new life which of course that's anyway uh, the last piece of our archetypal landscape is to recognize that uh, in this world, at least, both the masculine and the feminine have positive and negative qualities. Like, I, like I, I, and I said that, and let's, let's see if we want to get into that right now. We, we can do a little bit. Um, so again, like I said, the, maybe a, a better way to conceptualize it would be the Jungian uh, paradigm where they're everything has a beneficent and a shadow side that includes each human being right um, in the feminine nature 
as I've said, you have all the life-giving and sustaining elements that we associate with a mother. Uh, that that nurturing, caring, and uh, that that well, the nature provides. To get back to nature, nature provides food and clothing for the for our body, the elements of life itself, and also the beauty and and tranquility that our souls desire and and live off of. Interesting to note here, and we'll get back to it. That uh, in every single area of life, just as in both both. Uh, well, just as in each individual, again, I want to emphasize we have both masculine and feminine. So let's not get hung up on male versus female. It's not what this is about. And that's the – boy, it just takes us off track. You know, we'll, So quickly we'll never get to understand anything. Um, so we both, all of us individually, have both masculine and feminine in constant interplay uh, in our life to bring forth new, new lives and creations within us. So nature is enlivened by the sun. And its energy. This is a manifestation of the masculine in every major spiritual and philosophical tradition of East and West throughout history. Throughout history, the sun is is always uh, masculine in nature. Um, then all of nature. And you think about that, whether it's plants or or anything. All of nature uses, stores, and circulates that life energy of the sun. The same process happens in our bodies and in relation to the natural world around us. The world is unimaginably complex. And so when we try to tease out some of these uh, constituent elements, talk on an archetypal level, talk, talk symbols um, like the masculine and, feminine, masculine and feminine, we're necessarily going to have to oversimplify uh, at some points and, and just to be able to have the conversation. Uh, so let's not lose ourselves in the simplicity, though. There's a lot going on here, a lot of interplay. But recall that intuition comes from innocence. Innocence comes from humility before God. <clears throat> and to pull the thread all the way, as the Course in Miracles says, humility consists of accepting your role in salvation and in taking no other. Seeing only half of reality, male or female, masculine or feminine, or any identifiable difference or complex, that's the core of self-deception. And uh, the only real remedy... <clears throat> To seeing reality is this in this distorted way, what Paul called seeing through the glass darkly. The only real real remedy is the prescription. Well, it was Paul's prescription in that chapter. First Corinthians 13 is is charity. To be willing to suffer long, to seek not your own, not be easily provoked or offended, but believe all things. Um, skepticism is extremely low in vibration. Believe all things, bear all things, and endure all things. And thus we can begin to see things as they really are. It's not an easy or a natural path for mortals, but it's, well, seriously, what's the alternative, right? What are we going to do, just wander around in the dark for all of our four score and, or seven, whatever, 70 years on the planet? Anyway, so here's, we've, we've laid it out now. We've laid out the beneficent side of Mother Nature. And this is the side most modern people focus on because I'm obvious reasons. Here we are ensconced in our modern megalopolises, and you know, lights or electricity and running water everywhere, and all the comforts uh, that you could, the human mind can imagine. We can afford to wax poetic and romantic about the boundless beauty of nature, 
because it's something that we get to engage on our own terms now instead of on its terms. But the shadow side of the Great Mother is the one our ancestors were very familiar with, right? It's the terrible and destructive elements of nature. The brutal drought, the terrible plagues, and unpredictable natural disasters. The feminine principle of life in nature can both give life and take it away. And our crushing vulnerability before that reality is deeply, deeply rooted in our biology and in our neurochemistry and some of these archetypal stories that we have as human beings. Um, another element to the shadow side of, <clears throat> of uh, the feminine, that devouring mother archetype. Um, think of a mother bear. You know, she's going to do everything for her, for obviously for her cubs. But in that mode also, she will literally destroy uh, wantonly and willfully anything perceived as a threat. Interestingly, too, there's Margaret Barker in her work points out <clears> – <throat> the two parallels of the of the feminine aspect in the book of Revelation. Uh, I, so I had the references out. I didn't, wasn't fully prepared. I believe it's Revelation 5. Anyway, it talks about the uh, the woman that, that she, she identifies as the queen mother, the queen of heaven. And um, that's standing on, on the earth with uh, stars as crowns and and this is this is the mother. She gives birth to the son. But then the red dragon threatens. Uh, she flees into the desert to protect the son, and and uh, the son is eventually delivered. Michael and his angels fight the dragon, and the woman is reenthroned. <clears throat> All kinds of symbolism there. Obviously, the woman is the church, but 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 before that, she is the queen mother that we used to find in the in the Jewish temple. Again, this is according to her work. Uh, then there's, of course, there's the there's the shadow or a shadow side of the feminine, also represented in in the Book of Revelation, which again many now Margaret Barker again says it's likely the way it's written. Well, I'm not going to go into this, I don't think, but the likely revelations of Jesus that John reported or sh or then shared. In any case, a shadow side of the of the feminine there is the great whore of all the earth, right? And of course, men being men have often taken that as the archetype of the woman and ignored the previous. Point is, you find both beneficent and and uh, shadow and, and destructive elements on both the masculine and the feminine. So let's continue. So we we use to the logos. So, so this power of God within us to create, to organize habitable order out of unpredictable chaos of nature. Um, we can use this rightly or wrongly, obviously, and we do it every day. Uh, we can use by force, as mentioned earlier, or, or, or consciously. Now, these two paths represent the beneficent and shadow sides of the divine masculine in the world. In this current concept, we're talking about human civilization, and that's, that's, a, that's an idea that Peterson's put forth and taken out of, of some of the works of Nietzsche and, and Jung specifically. But that civilization is masculine in nature as it represents a building of creation, organizing, organizing is a better word, organizing of order out of, out of nature. Um, so I'm hoping you're following me here. <laughs> there's a lot here and there's a lot to get to. The, 
coming up, we're going to talk more specifically about priesthood and, and, and its application for males and females specifically, not just masculine and feminine elements. But we've got to get this foundation right until we can have our bearings. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> anyway, so civilization as, as a representation of, of masculine principle in the world, that structural concept that we've developed now for millennia as humans to protect and fortify ourselves from the, from the most unpredictable and even destructive elements of nature, right? That's a good way to think about it. So <clears throat> while we, we've done this while taking full advantage of nature and her life-giving beneficent gifts. So the first place of habitable order that we have <clears throat> in any of our records is, of course, the walled garden of God created in Eden. That's what Eden means. The walled garden. So we're going to have a lot to say about that in just a second, uh, about what took place there, specifically in that story. But for now, let's just recognize it as God's civilized and organized corner of nature, that piece of habitable and beneficent order he created for his children. Okay. So, well, of course, after the fall of Adam and Eve, you have duality consciousness entering the world as well as each individual entering each individual. And then everything manifests as an opposite, right? Uh, everything has a shadow side suddenly. All elements. I probably did not before, but this is the world we live in. So again, to reiterate, with the feminine in the world, current world, it's flowers, food, raiment, all the things that support life versus viruses, natural disasters, plague, etc. For the masculine, it's habitable order for humans. Um... That's the masculine principle in, in this world. And the dueling archetypes of that are the benevolent and righteous king or the terrible tyrant. These are the two forms organized, organized civilization can take. We can think about them as power versus force. Like I, like I said, in, laid out in, in Moses 5 and 6 and also in the work of David Hawkins, very you know by the book of that title, Power versus Force. You can also see these archetypes played out over and over again in the stories of God's covenant nations in the Old Testament, the Book of Mormon. The, the righteous king, the king as servant of the people, right? Think King Benjamin. And the terrible tyrant, think King Noah. Those stories are, are juxtaposed right next to each other in that book for good reasons. You can think also of the Book of Isaiah. <clears throat> How many times the Lord, the Lord himself and the prophets implored us to study Isaiah. The greatest of all, the Lord's told the Nephites. And that's the, that's the theme, one of the archetypal themes played out over and over again and really highlighted in Isaiah is this idea of, of society, civilization, as embodied or ruled by the righteous king, Christ, and, or, the, or the tyrant, the totalitarian tyrant. So, obviously, I think it's obvious by now, Male and female, or masculine and feminine, and male and female as we get into the human, are archetypes representing different aspects of divine reality. Two halves of the same whole, constituent elements of the same unity, the same thing. Always in revolving, interdependent relationship in time and space. And the archetypal shadows that we mentioned are usually what we don't want to acknowledge. 
But what is ignored will always pop up in the most unexpected places. It will always, always come up, like the snake in the Garden of Eden. So again, in, to use a, a Jungian construct, if you don't integrate these shadows, you don't have to overcome them. They're not there to be conquered. They're there to be acknowledged and integrated. But the unintegrated shadows of these most powerful and fundamental archetypes, male and female, especially now, today, in this age of transition, these unintegrated shadows are what are manifesting in our public, cultural, and political discourse in the West today. Essentially, you have a maternal and feminine energy manifesting within the constructs. Well, let's do this. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just finish that thought. I think you have a, a maternal and a feminine energy manifesting generally on in, in, in the United States, particularly in the Western world more broadly, on the political left and an unconscious rigidity of order manifesting on the political right. Um, I don't, I'm not going to get into politics at all, but I wanted to – that's the general dynamic we see. And again, this that's low resolution. You don't want to drill down too too much on that because we're people and you can find contrary examples everywhere. But 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 an archetypal level, I think that's what you have. And um, like I say, there's more we could say to delineate that, that exactly what we're talking about, but it's probably outside the scope of this podcast. I do want to say, though, <clears throat> there were, there's a lot of – misunderstanding beginning to form out there in that as we move from a Piscean age, which is decidedly masculine in energy, right? It was knowledge-based. It was all about action and movement and, um, and, and dominion. A lot of the shadow of masculine sides, that tyrannical powers were manifested and, uh, and developed in this, you know, both beneficent sides as well, too, in, of civilization were developed within this Piscean age. Moving into the Aquarian age, which is experiential, it's very open, and, and, and I think very feminine in aspect as well. And so you have a, a lot of people saying, well, the, the age of the feminine is dawning, and the Divine Mother is returning, and, and to and be reenthroned, and, and absolutely. But what we get often is a... A dynamic where people are talking about the beneficent side of the feminine, the divine feminine. Um, they're seeing that, and they're saying, and they're they're making an, a, a a leap and saying, "Well, we're replacing the masculine with the feminine, or the feminine has come to correct the toxic masculine." Um, what that leads to a lot is I'm seeing, particularly in political discourse, but a lot of in, in in religious, spiritual, and yogic uh, circles as well, we get an idea that once we get a the feminine aspect more firmly ensconced in civilization, everything's going to be fine. And what's actually happening right now on on those in those spheres is we're seeing seeing people try to replace the shadow masculine with the shadow feminine and that won't fix anything that won't fix anything in fact i think we could go into discussion about how that that the there may be more power involved in the masculine or in the feminine on both both beneficent and shadow sides and the potential for destruction by enthroning the the shadow side of the feminine in our society 
is is vast and exceeds what we've even created with the <clears throat> the shit the, the toxic or mass shadow side of the masculine we need to understand that both masculine and feminine have their dualistic natures be aware of those shadow sides and integrate them both in order to truly come into this age uh, it was probably not very clear there i, I wasn't really planning on getting into that specifically but i think it it needed to be mentioned, and so maybe there's somebody that, for whom that was useful. Um, anyways, but that but that brings us right back to it, right? The uh, the idea that we need to acknowledge these shadow sides and integrate them in the most Jungian sense, that's the part of the work of Christ's atonement. And the people who hold the keys to godliness, that's, that's what we're, we're here to demonstrate how to do, of course, how to learn how to do it first. If we allow ourselves to get caught up in the sideshow of dueling shadows, we're going to miss the whole thing. We're going to miss the whole show, our purpose, and our mission. And, that, and that everything has a shadow side. You think about compassion as essentially feminine in nature. And uh, every, the world's, all of, the New Age is now all about compassion. Yogi Bhajan, one of the sutras, uh, if you miss. Um, if you see without compassion, you will misunderstand the time or something like that, right? Well, compassion has a shadow side as well. You think again about the devouring mother. Deeply, ultimately compassionate for her own. Absolutely terrible and destructive towards anything outside of her own, her children, anything that might be a threat. So we need to be a little more, a little more nuanced, a little more sophisticated in the way that we approach and, and uh, peel back our archetypes. A little bit more humble, a little bit more innocent. <laughs> to receive that intuition so <clears throat> almost to the end of this episode now and, and then we'll I'll preview the, the next one but I wanted to do uh, and this is just going to become a kind of shotgun throw out a number of things uh, different ideas that we probably won't develop but that are out there <clears throat> and you can you can think about them or seek them out as you will um, we mentioned chaos as water penetrated by the word, the logos, to create life and order. Think about that in terms of the human uh, zygote and the fertilization that, that occurs there. Um, think about, again, we mentioned in the, the feminine as represented in both, uh, both beneficent and shadow sides in the book of Revelation, but also throughout the scriptures, right? Um, the church is represented as feminine. The, the the bride to Christ's bridegroom, Christ as bridegroom, right? But there's always a, like I said, a, um, a circulation, a, a movement, and we're, we're taking on different roles, masculine and feminine. That's why we shouldn't get too locked into this idea of, of uh, male is this and, and female, well, male and female are different, but masculine is this, fe feminine is this, because think about the church as uh, throughout the New Testament, <clears throat> And, and again, in the in the book of Revelation, with Paul as well, talks about being feminine. In, in a feminine aspect, the bride to Christ's bridegroom, right? We are receptive. We are um, enlivened, fertilized, and, and created. New life is created in the church through the priesthood of, of God, through Christ himself, through Christ coming to us, on in the marriage feast, right? That's the, the metaphor that's used. And uh, and that's what creates this life for the world. Well, in other places, the church is, is um, 
well, you think, okay, let's think about it this way. The church plays a masculine role to the world or the chosen people throughout history, whoever they might be, whether it's the, right, the, the House of Israel or, or, um, or modern day LDS church with the keys of, of the ceiling or the Khalsa in, in uh, Yugabajan's uh, lineage. The, the chosen people always play a masculine role in, in carrying something of value and life-giving, you know, fertilizing power to the world who then is, is receptive potentially in a, in a feminine manner. So we can play the same person, the same um, group of people, the same institution can play both masculine and feminine roles. So it's, you know, it's not just cut and dried here. Like we've got to, again, be aware of some of these things. Order and chaos are constantly revolving and evolving in the cycle of life. The sa, ta, na, ma, right? Those are alternately male and female. We, we, we divide the bij or the seed mantra, sa, nam. And it becomes sata nama, encompassing the five primal sounds. It's Yogi Bhajan said when you divide the Vij mantra like that into its elements, sata nama, it's like dividing the the atom. Releases that much energy, but you do so with sa and na that are that are masculine in energy, ta and ma, obviously, that is feminine in energy. And when you when you touch your your fingers in alternating alternating function, your your Jupiter finger is a positive has a positive charge. Saturn finger to negative charge. Your uh, your ring finger, whatever that is, is uh, is a positive charge. And then your Mercury finger, your pinky, is a negative charge. And so you're alternating, masculine, feminine, positive, negative, and that's happening in your brain electrically. Sata nama and alternating fingers with the mudra. It's everywhere. All this alternating going on. In the world, we move, think of Teddy Roosevelt here, an ultimate man, right? We move in a masculine posture. Con action, action is masculine. Constantly calling order out of chaos. Working to establish order in our little corner of the world, right? In our, in our lives, in our homes, whatever. Acting as and by the word of God, as creator and redeemer, generating and organizing in our own lives. All is masculine, but in relation to the embodiment of the word in this world, Christ himself, Jesus himself, we move in a feminine energy. Again, the bride to his bridegroom, ready to receive his creative force, inspiration, his redemptive power that he provides. And see how it kind of, I hope, I hope I'm, that's, that's of some utilities to folks. It's, it's a constant interplay to create life. I wanted to mention a couple of things from Margaret Barker. I mentioned her. <clears throat> She's, uh, again, a um, Methodist minister and, uh, and biblical researcher uh, uh, extraordinaire I mean, for several decades now in, uh, in the United Kingdm. She's been over here a number of times. Obviously, she's become a, a favorite of some LDS scars because she talks so much about the divine feminine and the Holy Mother or the Heavenly Mother. Um, she's been up to Logan a couple of times. I just saw her recently, about a month ago, in a small uh, small group setting. She was writing some of her most recent research, and she talked about. Uh, and again, she's not LDS, has no plans to become LDS, <laughs> but she knows uh, after a number of years of interacting with 
with LDS scholars. She's familiar with the with the ideas in the canon a little bit. But she talked about she's giving some of her most recent research on the book of I on the time of Isaiah. And uh, talked about <clears throat> there's lots of archaeological evidence now of metal books of thin plates from the Hebrew tradition from the time of Isaiah, which again precedes uh, Lehi by about 100 years. Uh, but these, but these, these plates, these books speak of a temple theology containing the story of Christ. Again, just about 700 BC, and a prominent Holy Mother figure uh, completing the divinity, the, di the divine Trinity of Father, Mother, Son. We talked about earlier, and uh, this this tradition that seems to have been either a major part of, or in fact the um, Hebrew religion prior to the Deuteronomist and, uh, and reforms and the reforms of King Josiah there in around 6 to 700 BC, these were what are called the wisdom traditions. They include the wisdom, they include the traditions of prophets. Uh, that's that, and, and that, that's in, in, in the literal, in the sense that we think of as Old Testament prophets, right? Visions, mystic experiences, transcending and transcendental experiences. Transcendental, not quite. <laughs> Transcending experiences, and uh, and that was, as far as she's she's concerned, that was the religion of the original um, temple cult, as she calls it, temple religion of uh, of the Hebrews. And of course, wisdom was always feminine and connected with the Queen of Heaven. That when you think when you hear wisdom and you see it in in Proverbs, for instance, and throughout the Old Testament, it's always feminine. Which we know, but she's making direct connections with an idea of the Queen of Heaven that was found, um, again, prominently in that temple. Uh, so, well, and interestingly, she talks about, she mentioned this before, she's mentioned uh, at this, when I was at this event, I was at Logan, she's mentioned it before, but in Malachi, all throughout the, 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 the spirit mentioned in Malachi, and the uh, the son of righteousness mentioned in Malachi is female in the original Hebrew. She rises with healing in her wings. Mother of heaven is always winged and related related to potential or chaos. Um, many traditions and Jewish stories tell of groups of, of mystic priests who were disciples of Isaiah that fled during Josiah's reign. Again, the same time as Jeremiah and Lehi there when Lehi fled. Including Micah was one of those. One of those is they were called Rechabites, um, <clears throat> Jewish mystics that that fled uh, what was becoming a a, a a new religion that had reformed the temple to remove a lot of these, well, all of the feminine elements and a lot of the mystical elements. And then you get you start to understand, wow, now that might be that might be what we're seeing playing out in the family of Lehi, Lehi and Nephi are constantly having these visions. Laman and Lemuel saying, God doesn't talk to us like that, and and you need to die because you're a visionary man. Because that's not the that's not the law. You see, Laman and Lemuel were never they weren't anti religion. They weren't um atheists by any stretch. They were rabbinists. They were of the rabbinical tradition. And they thought the rest, that, that old mystical wisdom tradition that included the feminine, the tree of life, and the, um, 
and the visions and all those things and that spirit that was feminine, giving you the visions, they they thought that was all heretical. That was um, that was corrupt in paganism, and and Nephi and, and Lehi were were following that tradition <clears throat> from Isaiah and Jeremiah down that same time. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, hypothesis there. Obviously, we can't prove it, but boy, there's a lot of archaeological evidence that Margaret Barker now is putting forth saying that that may have been the case, and it may be interesting to see that's what we're playing, we see playing out in the first chapters there of First Nephi, but she also mentioned this great lady of the temple, the queen mother, queen of heaven. Her symbols were in everything, and this is what she took us through when she was in Logan, and it's everywhere. It's crazy. She has, uh, it's unbelievable the amount of work she's doing, but the symbols were the the triangle, and the bee, the honeybee. Triangle is obvious, right? The honeybee, maybe not so obvious. Um, but the idea was, and, and Nibley did some work on this <clears throat> uh, decades ago. She was not pulling the same threads that Margaret Barker's pulling with regards to Isaiah in that time. But anciently, the, the honeybee, particularly in, in Egypt and uh, some in Mesopotamia as well, some of these very earliest civilizations we have records of, the honeybee was revered as divine and representative of the divine feminine, of the queen of heaven. Uh, obviously, the bee is matriarchal in society. It's matriarchal in nature. They all serve the, <clears throat> the, the mother and the, the queen, but that's the only part of it. There's also an element that the um, – again, this is from Nibley – but the, the bee is what reconstitutes life and carries life after the collapse of, uh, of, of, of life, after the flood, for instance. You need bees to repollinate. After any such natural disaster, bees carry and, and recreate life. Okay, so, well, now that makes, starts to make a little more sense why the story, or our stories of the Jaredites in the Book of Ether, why they were so insistent on mentioning the bees, right? Here they are crossing a continent and then crossing an ocean, and, and uh, it's quite an epic story, very, very mythical and, and uh, archetypal in, in every way, right? It's, it's the call to adventure, and there they go out there, and their civilization's destroyed. What a story. And by the way, we brought our bees. Like, who, what? Who gives a damn, right? We assume you brought a lot of things. Why are you mentioning the bees? And, uh, of course, the old Mormon uh, cultural uh, idea was, uh, well, to represent industry. Ooh. Okay, but is industry really an archetypal level uh, value? You need to work hard. Well, obviously, I mean, I guess that's what God mentioned to the first thing he mentioned to uh, Adam after the fall. But is that really what the bee represents? Probably not. Probably was this idea of the divine feminine embodying the queen, queen of heaven, and the idea that we're starting a new society. Right? They're going back out into the chaos of the unknown, and taking with them the the feminine, the masculine elements to organize it and within that is a feminine power to reconstitute life and, and civilization and society <clears throat> um, and then that makes a lot more sense why why latter-day saints then consciously or not it really doesn't matter have taken it as a symbol particularly in a lot of our temples when if society ever collapses it is the keys of the sealing power that will reconstitute the ability to live <clears throat> and commune with God and, and bind things together. And now we have those temples 
all across the, the world. And so the beehives are distributed. There's, I can say more about that. And that's my own extrapolation off those lines of research. But interestingly enough, I wanted to bring it up because, again, the bee is over and over and over again throughout all ancient societies, including and especially the Hebrews at the time of Isaiah in, the te in their temple theology, uh, as, as laid out by Margaret Barker, the bee is a symbol of the mother in heaven, the queen of heaven, also known as wisdom. She said has been part of the original temple cult as the virgin mother of the Messiah. So that, again, preceding even Lehi here, this is the time of uh, when we started to get a lot of split-offs, <clears throat> people leaving the, the uh, Jerusalem because they thought the religion had been corrupted and taking some of the temple pieces with them. Um, and she said all of them had the same idea. The queen of heaven was also in the temple. Um, oh, hell, uh, represented, I guess, as the virgin mother of the Messiah. Now, she also interestingly said, this is Margaret Barker again. She said, virgin can be translated as the hidden lady. So not necessarily um, just... You know, hasn't hasn't had intercourse, but the hidden lady, or the lady who incarnates, gives flesh to the Word of God, and interesting encompassed in that in that uh, that concept of virgin virginity is the one who is silent, not as we take it in as we butcher the the words of Paul when he talks commands women to be silent. Silent. That's not what he's saying. He's, I think he's probably referencing this idea. The virgin who is silent, or as Margaret Barker says, the what silent means the one who does not reveal all that she knows. That's a whole different take on it. Finally, the lady, this this queen of heaven, this virgin mother, in the old temple cult, always in the Hebrew temple, prior to the Deuteronomist reforms, always set the seal of the upon the head of the Messiah. She gave him, she was the anointed one, she was the anointer, and anointed him with wisdom and exalts him. And this corresponds, she said, this is Margaret Barker again, this corresponds to the seal of the living God given upon the foreheads of all the saved in the book of Revelation. So the prophets received the gifts of the Spirit from the Queen Bee. This is again Margaret Barker. She said the Queen Bee, it's always represented as honey and milk. And that gets right back to Isaiah and, 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 and what Jacob quoted, the parts of Jacob and Nephi quoted in the Book of Mormon, who called salvation and is, is represented as honey and milk bought without price. Honey and milk. Honey, and this, this is Margaret Barker again, and this just blew me away when she said this in this meeting in, in Logan just a few weeks ago. Honey as the product of the bee, which is the divine feminine, and that which gives sweetness and nourishment, right? And milk, that which nourishes the infant and gives it life, obviously, obviously, from the mother and no place else. That honey and milk bought without price mentioned in Isaiah is referencing the gifts of the mother of heaven. Interestingly, she also represented, she also said almond rods represent the true priesthood you know, throughout this, this ancient temple imagery. Um, I'm not, I'm not gonna gonna peel that one back. Almond rods.
But she also said the name of the Lord in the forehead <clears throat> is part of the restoration of the priesthood. And the Holy Mother, the Spirit, in this case and in, in throughout this uh, these temple texts and many of our Old Testament texts, the Holy, the Holy Mother is the Spirit who anoints. She's the one who anoints. It's very important, she said, in the book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation and throughout early Christianity, particularly those who went to the desert. So interesting there, and I thought I'd throw those out. We're not going to develop them or talk about you know, implications more than that, but I thought they'd be interesting for you to, to, to noodle on for a bit. Let me just give one quote from Margaret Barker here. <clears throat> talking about how, how the Great Mother was a prominent figure in, in First Temple Judaism. Uh, but she was systematically obscure in the texts during the reforms of King, Mo King Mosiah. Uh, this is quoting Margaret uh, directly. She said, she, this Great Mother, was written out of the text after the Cultural Revolution of 16, 623 B.C. Recall, when did Lehi leave Jerusalem? About that time says she was written out of, the, out of the text after this revolution when the heirs of the revolutionaries repointed the Hebrew text. Similarly, archaeologists used to throw away the many female figurines found in Jerusalem and Judah because they thought they did not represent anything in the religion of the Old Testament. So two Bible translators. Here she says, this is what I didn't want to mention. <clears throat> the Hebrew of Malachi 4.2 says, The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in her wings. Son, in Hebrew could either be masculine or feminine, and here it's unmistakably feminine. But I haven't found any English translation which gives this. We read about Elijah and the day of the Lord, but we're never told about the third part of the prophecy, which is that the lady returns. That's Margaret Barker. This is from somebody I, I respect online. I haven't even met him. His name is Morgan Aldous, and he's uh, one of the administrators on... <clears throat> A uh, Facebook group I'm part of called Latter-day Lobsters and Sorted Saints, <laughs> talking about the work of Jordan Peterson. Uh, anyway, he's got some interesting ideas sometimes. And he posted this, and I, I want to attribute him, even though I haven't met him. But He said, the son of righteousness was depicted as a, as a winged – well, let me go back a little bit here. He said, Peterson had said in a few of, of his lectures that the golden snitch in Harry Potter resembles an old alchemical symbol, the winged chaos. And I, I've heard him mention that, Peterson, that is, and I, he's saying I doesn't. It's amazing where how J.K. Rowling came up with this at her kitchen table, right? In any case, the winged chaos. In alchemy, this is the prima materia, the original stuff, or matter unorganized. As chaos, this symbol would therefore be a manifestation of the great mother. And then consider that quote we just read from Margaret Barker. He continues, the son of righteousness was depicted as a winged solar disk and was an emblem of the kings of Judah. This is well established in Margaret's uh, research as well. He said, our heavenly mother is the winged – well, he goes on a, a little bit and, and mentions this this winged solar disk picture. Um, he posted a picture of the seal of King Hezekiah, which also featured the heavenly mother's winged son, along with the Ankh, that Egyptian symbol for life. It's associated with Isis. That's also the winged um, chaos. And potentially an umbilical cord representing health to the navel, concept with obvious feminine connection. And we can really talk about that at some other point in time, about how <clears throat> connection at the navel point is how all humans connect, and that is deeply feminine. And in our current society, we're, we're all are mind-dominated 
uh, head brain dominated. That tends to, um, it doesn't understand that connection at the navel point. And so it just localizes it and thinks it's a, it's a sexual connection. And that's a, a root of a lot of dysfunction in our society, but that's a different, entirely different topic. And I probably just was confusing and throwing it out like that. But. In any case, uh, Mr. Aldous continues, our heavenly, heavenly mother is the winged chaos, the source of matter unorganized, and therefore of all creation. Again, this is something totally outside the yogic tradition that, I'm, that I was talking about earlier. He continues, the feminine corresponds to the unknown, mysteries of nature, etc. The ancients believed that the goddess embodied these traits, and so she was veiled. It's the end of his thought there. She was veiled because, number one, she's the virgin who doesn't speak all she knows. And much of her being and essence is unknown. That's not a mystery to any man who's ever lived on the face of the earth, right? It's women that give us consciousness. Eve gave man, Adam consciousness, and it made him alive and gave him the fruit, made him self-conscious. Well, that's been going on ever since with, with her daughters and men. We never have a clue what's going on. And Yogi Bhajan always talked about, you know, the woman has 16 aspects to her to her being and her mind in this in this sphere, in this life, that man and man has one. Primarily, there's an evolutionary reason for that. Obviously, the woman has to be able to grow a god inside her and then feed it and care for it, that milk and honey. Man doesn't have to do that, so he doesn't have those extra capacities. But the point is, there are mysteries upon depths of mysteries in the unknown within the feminine, yet to be revealed, still veiled, and appropriately so, for a number of reasons. Has nothing to do with hiding beauty or power or anything. And I tell you, taking the veils off and speaking up in your power as a woman, as the feminine, out of out of context and is is pearls before swine. And has an I has will have a an effect only of being destructive. Until this the masculine civilization, this society, and the individuals within it are ready to comprehend the unknown and those mysteries. So that's the idea again of the virgin, the veil, etc. There's much more there, and there's been a lot written recently <clears throat> on the veiling of, of uh, the feminine in throughout the ancient Near East, not just in the Hebrew religion, in the in First Temple Judaism. Anyway, a lot there, and a lot more threads to pull, obviously. But um, just to wrap it up on the, uh, again, the ideas of beneficent and shadow sides of both masculine and feminine. <clears throat> Positive or true, and let's say that. A shadow is not true, right? It's a shadow. It's not part of the truth. It, it only exists in this um, dualistic realm. So you don't need to confront it. You don't need to confront toxic masculinity, for instance. You need to integrate it into the truth. The true feminine aspect is wisdom and intelligence. The shadow feminine aspect is emotional, uncontrolled emotional and commotional, right? Yogi Bhajan said, we do not want to relate to our intelligence or our wisdom because we are attached to our emotions. <laughs> Think about this in the feminine aspect. 
The reason we don't want to relate to our intelligence is that when we are intelligent, <clears throat> we are responsible. And worst of all, when we are intelligent, we are accountable. Men don't want to answer to anybody, but when we are emotional, we are not accountable. And think about that as, as what's going on in the world today. But to continue on there, being both responsible and accountable delivers us to the true masculine. Steady, intelligent, rational, conscious awareness and provision for life, that sun energy providing for the life that grows up out of Mother Earth, that's the positive, uh, the true masculine aspect. Right? So this allows the man to fulfill that single greatest and most basic function of a man, the Yogi Bhajan identified <clears throat> in, his, in his courses to men, and that is a man's job is to win the trust and deliver on that trust. Shiftless, clever, manipulative force or power, that's the shadow masculine. Both true aspects together, <clears throat> when combined, they hold the space, space for creation, experience, and redemption of life. Sa-ta-na-ma. All humans, all of us, have all four aspects of this. Positive and negative and masculine and feminine. We all manifest all, all of them at different times. One is usually dominant. We need to integrate the shadows. Finally, prosperity is feminine. That tree of life, <clears throat> most desirable of all things, that completes everything. It takes nourishment from the breast of Mother Earth. What's that poem by Joyce, is it Joyce Kilmer? Trees. Fools can make a... Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. It talks about the, the tree nursing at the breast of Mother Earth. That's the tree of life. Taking nourishment from earth and light from the sun in order, and needing both in order to bear the fruit that is most desirous above all else. That's prosperity. So you root into the mother to live and prosper in this life. Um, it, that's as good of a place to end as any, I think. And I guess I just want to say this, that <clears throat> all these myths, getting back to Jordan Peterson a little bit, you know, the myths of uh, St. George, for instance, you know, and you got that that archetypal myth uh, and story repeating over and over and over again that have the drag, you know, the the, the masculine knight and, he, and he's masculine because it's masculine in nature. It doesn't have to be male, but the the role of the knight is masculine um, going out to, to fight and confront the dragon. And the dragon is what? Guarding both a princess or a virgin. Feminine. And the gold, the treasure, the prosperity. Lots and lots of layers of meaning in that, right? Obviously. But what is the dragon of, of well, the adversary, the dragon, and often, oftentimes the dragon of chaos? What, what, is, what is that dragon guarding for, for humans on this, in this life, in this earthly life? Prosperity and love, right? Prosperity and love as represented and and deep, deep knowledge and wisdom as represented again in the in the, in the virgin feminine. All that. Anyway, even pick apart that. I don't want to I just want to point those out in different different representations there than you sometimes hear even Jordan Peterson or Carl Jung or others. Um yeah, so 
the male is constant. The woman is um, is open and and sometimes changing. That's the moon, which is the sun. And that's again, the man has to be constant like the sun to to provide life. We'll get to more of this in the next. We'll, we'll develop this in the next episode. And the woman needs to have seasons and cycles um, in order to bring forth life, in order to grow it and then rest and grow life within. And, and and that can obviously relates to bearing children, but it does not have to. And that's what we'll get to in the next episode. Um, it's the function of that, that male constant to stabilize the variables um, to provide, so that, so that life may, may, may be born and, and, and occur and grow. Both mother Earth and Son, Father, are blended in the human and in all of life, blended in the heart, in your own soul. Lots there, lots and lots and lots and lots. That was much more than I anticipated. <clears throat> and I think it sets the stage for where we wanted, for what we're going to talk about in the next episode. The story of the fallen redemption. Um, the priestly functions of man and woman and how priesthood works there. Again, according to Andy, right now. <laughs> and what then the roles of masculine and feminine men and women are, how they interact, how they change. And um, I'm going to talk about that story at the next, and during the next episode. I hope this has been useful. I think... It will become more useful as we attach on the, the next episode and then maybe go back and listen to it. Again, I threw out just a lot of thoughts, a lot of ideas, a lot of points that each one can be developed um, almost infinitely. <clears throat> and there's lots, lots more, obviously. But uh, some things maybe that maybe that you weren't aware of or hadn't considered before. I hope that was the case. And, and so it was something that was of use. So we'll do the next episode shortly. and. Um, yeah, hope it's been fun and or useful. Satnam.